0: Hello, pod listeners. This is our last week of the Sustain campaign. Uh, we're very close to hitting our goal of having 375 Sustainers. We're at right now, uh, I believe it's 356, which if you do the math means that we're just 19 short of hitting our goal. And I could at this point get all kind of like evangelistic on you and say, ah, right now I'm just getting a word that you, 19, you know who you are right now. God's talking to you. God's talking to you. You know, you you can sense it. And so put your hands on the television set and so a seed faith offering and God's going to bless your socks off. I could get like that, but we never get like that. So I'm not going to get that way today. I'll just say, you know, here's the need and pray about it. And and, uh, whatever we get, we're going to be thankful for. And we really appreciate uh, your commitment. Uh, but we really would like to hit this goal. And so perfectly consider jumping on board if you haven't done so already. Remember that for everyone who signs up as a regular giver, uh, there's another $50 that will be contributed from a generous family at Woodland Hills Church as a matching fund. And of course, there's our world-famous Padrishner t-shirts that you get when you sign up. Uh, just go to whchurch.org sustain. whchurch.org sustain. God bless you guys. Thanks for your commitment to Woodland Hills Church and to his kingdom. Now enjoy this message. God bless. Hey before I get into this, uh, I have a, a little announcement here to make. Um, we are, are having some new and returning uh, ca- uh, people on our boards uh, that are up for this candidacy here We've got two leadership boards at Wilderness Church one is the overseers and the other one is the trustees. They're both majority uh, run by volunteers um, and so the people uh, they come up for nomination or they're getting renewed and according to the New Testament uh, you People who are in leadership position need to be above reproach. And so we put their names out there, uh, and you'll read about this in your bulletin, um, to really just say this. If there's anyone who has any just cause reason to think that these people are not fit for leadership, uh, then we want to hear from you. And so uh, you have one week to let us know about anything that is of a concern for you. Uh, Speak now or forever hold your peace. All right? So there you go. Um, So we are starting this new series here, uh, Glimpses of Truth. Uh, You know, Brianna's a lady after my own heart and after my own ADD mind. Uh, She was kind of of all over the place, uh, as I have been. Uh, So I woke up at 2 in the morning, and that was it. Uh, That's all I got. And that's been a pattern throughout this week. Every other night, it's gone. and so what if is this this is, I guess, a kind of a warning, um, is that when I—most people, when they get tired, they get kind of lower energy. I tend to go the other way. I get, like, more hyper, and I edit less. And so just know that. <laughs> I, I, my editing is not as good, so there's that. So this uh, series, glimpses of truth. We're going to be looking back at the Old Testament and looking at places where the Spirit of God broke through, where they got glimpses of truth, and and kind of uh, just seeing the story of God working with people where they're at to bring us to the point where they could get a full revelation of God in Christ. And it's the story of our life, you know, the, the story of their life. How God's been carrying us all the way along. Like we just sang, sang about. Uh, the theme verse is Hebrews 1, and I'm not actually going to be unpacking this passage until towards the end of the message, but I want to give it at the start because it's a theme for this whole series, and um, I want it to kind of like percolate in your brain. Uh, it's, it's a, it expresses the fact that we're part of a story. God who gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truth and the words of the prophets, so those words are all little glimpses, has now at the end of the present age given us the truth in the sun. So they got glimpses of the truth, but now we've got the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So insofar as they got glimpses of the truth, they're seeing the same thing that we see. It's just that they didn't see them as clearly. Through the sun, God made the whole universe, and to the Son he has ordained that all creation shall ultimately belong. Everything's created by Christ and for Christ. This sun is the radiance of the glory of God the flawless expression of the nature of God, the very essence of God. That's what the sun is. In contrast to everything that preceded the sun, he is the radiance of the glory of God and a flawless expression of his very nature. I'll come back to that in a little bit. Um, I'm going to start by telling you this story. And this will be a little bit surprising to some of you because I'm so boringly normal now. Uh, you'd never believe that I wasn't always this way, but it's true. Um <laughs> I was a weird kid. As I look back on it, it's like bizarro boy. You know, it's, it's uh... actually I was a little strange until I married Shelly uh, and she kind of normalized me. She de-weirded me. I was a little weird up to that point. And now I've been normal ever since. But before that, it was strange. So it was like I lived in my imaginative world and my imaginative world didn't interface with the objective world very well. It was out of sync. I felt like the world I was in was, was just always out of sync with the outside world. And I could never make it sync up. And I was, so I was always frustrated. I was always confused. I, just the way I processed things didn't match the way the world was. Plus, I had a serious stuttering problem as a kid, all the way through school, actually. Uh, so, irony is that an I speak for a living. But, but I, I, I just stuttered terribly as a kid. And um, had to go to speech therapy and all that sort of thing. But I could never express what was on the inside very well. You had to have a lot of patience to hear, hear me out. Because I would just get, you know, caught up on stuff. Okay, so here's a, an example of the, the weirdness getting played out. As a little boy, five, six, seven years old, I went to a Catholic school. And in Catholic school, very early on, like in kindergarten or first grade, they talked about these, these people called the Lutherans. <laughs> and the Lutherans, they rebelled against the church and rebelled against the Pope and the Virgin Mary. And all things sacred. And uh, they, 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 we had to be very careful never to go to one of their churches, these Lutherans. And, and if you're going to be friends with Lutherans, then, and you know, who knows what the nun said. This is what my little brain heard. Uh, that you got to be very careful. She didn't say you couldn't ever be a friend with a Lutheran if they're, you know, living on your block or something. But they shouldn't be your best friends. And, and be careful so you don't get infected with Lutheranism. So in my little brain, first grade or so, I, my, the world was divided into two groups, the only two groups I really knew about. Uh, there's the, the, there's the, the Catholics, and then there's the Lutherans, and there's kind of a war going on between them. Now, at the same time, I spent a lot of time with uh, watching war movies, war, war television shows. Uh, my dad and I just loved them. Uh, he'd get a chocolate bar, and we just watched these shows together. Whenever he was in town, uh, that's what we did. Um, this is in the 60s, and they had a lot of World War II television shows. Like like 12 O'Clock High, some of you remember that? Or Combat, or my favorite was The Galleant Men, or These Galleant Men. Uh, the, the music gave me goosebumps. And, 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 and then a Combat was another one, or a Rap Patrol. So these World War II shows. And from there I learned that, and I, I thought it was still going on, that there's a war going on between Americans and the Germans. And, and the Germans the, the distinguishing mark between them was that the Germans talk funny, because in the '60s shows, no one actually spoke German, but they talked English with a German accent. Do you remember that? They, that's how they would play it. Colonel Clark, you know, so. Uh, so now the world is divided between the, the Americans who talk normal and the Germans who talk funny. And at some point, my little brain put it together that, you know, it kind of did the math on this. So all of the world must be divided between these two groups. There's the Catholics who are all American and talk normal. And then there's Germans who are all Lutheran and talk funny. Those are the two, two groups. And, and uh, I lived in that world. I would, you know, always go out and play army all the time. I was always playing army. And I loved to play by myself, most of all, because if you're playing with friends, well, then your imagination doesn't have as much free reign. And I like to just kind of imagine things. And so I'd be out there shooting, you know, my— and it was always Catholic good guy, normal-talking Greg versus the odd-talking Lutheran Germans. The Lutheran Germans are the enemies. And that's how the world was divided. This caused a problem for me in first grade because in the middle of first grade, uh, a, a girl transferred into our class. And she was really, really cute. So cute that I remember her name. Her name was Amy. And I remember exactly what she looked like. And it was the first time I remember in my life where my heart started going pitter-patter. You know, like, ha, ah, ah, ah. yeah, And, and you, know, you get kind of giddy around her. You know, it's just, it's just, I, I never felt like this before. It was like the first time I was falling in love. Is that pretty young to fall in love, six? Was, I started early, what can I say? Always been a ladies' man. So, I, I was just, you know, struck by how cute she was. The problem was that she had an accent. I, I know, I, I know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, and, and, uh, you know, looking back at it, I don't know if it was a German accent or a Norwegian accent or a French accent or whatever. Uh, in my little homogenous world, there's only two types of people. People who talk normal and people who talk funny. If you talk funny, you're a Lutheran-German enemy. And she talked funny. So, uh, but I was in love. And this caused a dilemma. Because we're not supposed to, you know, really be friends with the enemy. And here, I want to somehow, you know, marry her. <laughs> so there's a, a problem here. So my, my dilemma, my theological dilemma is, do I, do I follow my heart? In which case, I must forsake God and country and church. <laughs> or do I say, do I honor God and country and church and forsake my heart? That's the dilemma. Um, and in, when you're six years old, cuteness trumps God and country and, and church. All, no, no, no question. So I'm going to follow my heart. And I figured if it was a really bad sin with the nuns called a mortal sin, uh, they'd stop me anyway, so I might as well just go for it. So I hit a strategy on how to get Amy, uh, the Lutheran German enemy, to like me. Um, uh, on the one hand, I did this. I, I, I noticed that on all the shows I watched uh, the war shows, the Germans had had, had uniforms and, and that had high collars. It was like a, a clerics and that kind of thing and, and so I figured they must like high collars in Germany and and the guys are wearing high collars because the girls must like guys with high collars so i'm i 'm going to put my collar up uh, and get <laughs> the German Amy to like me and so and the, and the awkward part is that I was going to Catholic school where he had uniforms, and so we had a white shirt and a black tie. Everyone had to have that. And then I would flip my collar up, so I'd be around my I like, like that. I told you I was a weird kid. For several weeks at least, I mean, it was longer. My mom wouldn't let me get out of the house like that, so I had to wear it down until I got you know, to school, and then I would quickly flip it up. And kids would say, Greg, your collar's up, like I made a mistake or something. I go, I, I know, I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, and I get teased for, you know, kids would start teasing me about it, but I didn't care. Love was willing to pay the price. Uh, I know what I'm going for. I got a strategy. So, so, yeah, I think that Amy didn't seem that impressed with it. In fact, she didn't even seem to notice. She, she, text, she kept to herself a lot. She hardly said anything ever. And I figured that's because she's, you know, it's tough to be a Lutheran-German enemy in, a, in an American Catholic school. Uh, but uh, I'm going to try to reach out to her. But she never was that impressed with my collar. But that's my strategy. Dress like a German. If you want to get a German chick, dress German. <laughs> Second strategy was this. I figured, you know, she probably feels weird talking different here. It's, a, it's an evidence of how, how homogenous my background was that I noticed such a big difference with an accent. But she probably feels isolated because she's, you know, talking this funny accent, so I'm going to show her that I welcome her and, and want to f- make her feel at home by imitating her accent. <laughs> it's brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy. What want you to think. I, I, you, you got to talk their language, you know. you got to be at their level. Synchronicity. So I—and and Lord knows what I must have sounded like. I don't know what I sounded like, but I was trying to imitate what I heard on television— and kind of what I hear from her, and so I start talking German, <laughs> and so he always has this kind of, bite, you know, like enslaving vacation, uh, and so I would always just try to say, Emma, I like to hear oh, very much, yeah, and and I was, I was sincerely trying to speak her language. Not only when I was talking to her, but if I was, if she was in hearing distance, I wanted her to, you know, think that this is how I normally talk. So I'd be talking normal to a guy, but hey, yeah, it wasn't a great game on the playground, and if anything starts coming by, I'd switch voices. And <laughs> then he kicked the ball they hard. i go, out of bounds, yeah, yeah. That's The kid would like, like, what is with? Love's willing to pay the price. Um, sometimes I'd even throw in, and I'm not kidding, I, I what I thought were German words. I, you know, I heard German words and I, I would like to authentic, make it authentic. And so I would like be talking to everyone, trying to talk very uh, German to her and then, <laughs> and I, I, in my twisted brain, I thought she could understand that. <laughs> and she, she just kind of looked at me like, like and she would never answer back. But she, it was clear she was not impressed. That didn't impress her. In fact, it seemed to irritate her. Uh, One time she went and told the teacher something. I don't know what she told the teacher, but the teacher came over and said, you know, it's not nice to make fun of the way people talk. And I so didn't, except I wasn't doing that, and so I didn't apply to me. And I I was used to being ADD. I was always in trouble, and I hardly ever knew why. And so I got hollered at, but I didn't make the connection that I was supposed to stop talking to her this way, so I kept talking to her that way. So the story goes on. Now, this one particular time, and you'll see what this has to do with the price of Petunia in Taiwan soon. But um, Amy was sick for a couple of days, which were terrible for me. What do you look at in a classroom if Amy's not there? Uh, Very lonely. But when she came back, she had to do a makeup test, and so they put her out in the hallway where the class went on so she could do those makeup tests. Now, the hallway's also where bad kids went when they needed a time out. And I spent a lot of time in that hallway. (laughs) So I knew how to get in that hallway, and I, fig- I was figuring, strategy, strategy, uh, th- this is some quality time with Amy. I can finally get through to her. So I quickly got some spit wads and started shooting my kids, and within 30 seconds, I'm out in the hallway. This is brilliant. I should write a book, How to Get a German Chick. So, so I'm out there, and I say, and my collar's up and my accent's on. I'm working it. Amy... I want you to know that I don't mind that you are a German Lutheran enemy. I like you. And she looks at me, with a bewildered look. That was so cute, this look that she gave. It was like, and she goes, Quiet, I'm trying to, leave me alone, I'm trying to take a test. Which I took to mean. She likes me. Oh yeah. She's flirting with me. She's, she's flirting with me. The truth is, I have never been any good at picking up on female cues. I, I, zero. I'm talking zero. It's not working for me. So I, I, I'm thinking, that, oh, she likes me. So I get more enthusiastic, stutter a little bit more. Uh, but I, I say, you know, I, I wasn't know that. I hope your father does not get killed by a German soldier on war. And and I, I think it very good that school let you in, even though you're Lutheran enemy. And she goes, shut up! I'm trying to take this test. I said, Le- leave me alone. And then she goes, you're mean. And I thought, oh, really? That mean? Um, and then she goes, well, I, I-, 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 I said, okay, well, I'll-, I'll leave you alone. But I said, one more thing. One more thing. I, have to, I had to get it off my heart. This is my only chance. For, that's why I said, okay, but first, I want you to know, I- I- I'll be quiet, but you, you know, I-, I think you're very, very pretty, very pretty, and I want to marry you uh, in-, in the future, even though our countries and religion are at war with one another. And she goes, if you don't shut up, I'm going to go tell Miss Campbell what you're doing, and you're going to get in even worse trouble than you're in now. And I don't like you. I'm not going to marry you. And I was like, oh. My heart is I knew she meant that when she said, I don't like you. It was like, ah. All this work, you know, I'm trying to dress German, trying to talk German, trying to relate to her, and it all backfires. She doesn't like me. And I I actually thought I was going to cry— which would be terrible when you're six years old in front of a girl. And so I instead put on this m- mean face. And I go, fine. I think German Lutherans stink. And I don't like German Lutherans. And, and, and I hope your dad does get shot in the war. <laughs> I know it. I, I assume that he was a soldier out there, you know? And so, and at that, she looks up and she's like hurt and angry. So she gets up and goes to tell Ms. Campbell what I just told her. And this Campbell comes out and grabs me by the ear and drags me down to Mother Superior's office. Mother Superior then says, is it true that you said that you want Amy's father to get shot? I said, yeah, but I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it. And and then I tried to explain to her, but I was stuttering too much now because I was nervous and nothing got out. But I was trying to say, well, look, at he's a German soldier of enemy. Don't you want him killed? Because I thought that the world was still in a state of war. But that didn't get through. So other mother superior just took out her ugly stick, this huge thing with holes in it so it wouldn't have any wind resistance. And she had me bend over, and I got it on the behind ten times. So that my first attempt at love was an utter, utter failure. All I got was a broken heart and a very sore butt, and I could have wrote a country western song. <laughs> my hurting butt. Okay, so here's the point of this. I told you I was a strange kid. My world just did not cohere. Um, what would you think if someone today were to put on a tweet or write a blog or put it in the newspaper somehow, make it public that Greg Boyd, this pastor or author, uh, he said that German Lutherans stink and they are the enemy. And he traumatized a young lady by saying, I hope your father gets shot. That would be kind of bad, wouldn't it? That would look... And if a reporter came to my house and said, did you actually say that? I'd have to say, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I did say that. So in a sense, it's true. But the fact that it happened 53 years ago should count for something, shouldn't it? I, it, it, you know, I, I said it when I was six-year-old. I was ignorant. I was confused. I thought the world was divided between Americans and Germans and, and good talkers and bad talkers and, and, and Catholics and Lutherans. I, I, I was in a little tiny world, and you've got to understand what I said in that context, in my little immature stage. Um, I'm different now. I've learned a lot of things. I've learned a lot about Germans and Americans and, 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 and religion and wars and God and girls. And, no, not so much I haven't learned about girls very much, but the rest of it's true. And, and so I'm in a different place now. So don't judge me who I am today based on what happened uh, 53 years ago, which just goes to the point that if, if someone's going to quote you, it matters a great deal what stage of life they're quoting you at. Where were you at when they quoted you? Because, see, your life is a story, an unfolding story, and in stories, where something's located makes all the difference in the world. Things that were maybe cute or just, just silly or stupid when you're six can get you arrested if you say them when you're 59, right? Where something's located makes all the difference in, in, in the world. Place matters. Location matters in a story. The same is true of the Bible. The Bible, you know, it's interesting, but when God goes to reveal himself to human beings, he doesn't give us a theological textbook. Here is the compendium of all true theological truths. All right, the the encyclopedia of all things that are true. He doesn't give us that. He doesn't give us an encyclopedia of all wise things, uh, you know, all sorts of aphorisms and wisdom sayings, the giant fortune cookie kind of thing. He doesn't do that. What he gives us is a story. A story that, that, that grows and it unfolds and it develops. It's got a plot to it. It's got a culmination, a surprising culmination. It's not a theological textbook where everything is of equal value, right? It, where you just turn any page, you're going to get a true thing. In a story where something's at matters a great deal. And this is a story about a heavenly missionary coming to this foreign, weird, barbaric, fallen earth. It's a story about a he- heavenly missionary who... Uh, because he respects the personhood of people, he won't use coercion to get people to believe the truth. He'll never coerce someone into having a true view of him. He rather works by means of influential love. That's why Paul says that the cross is the power of God. Now, The cross is also the supreme expression of God's self-sacrificial nature, but it's also the expression of his power because his power is self-sacrificial love. He rules the world and, and he, he works in people's lives through self-sacrificial love. By means of influence. And the Bible's a story about how this heavenly missionary has always been getting involved, as, as we just saying, as he does in our own life. That's what he's been doing with humanity. He gets involved. He chases us. He pursues us. And he uses his influential power to reveal as much of his true self as he can. But to, he, because he's not coercive, he'll also accommodate as much as is necessary. He takes us where we're at, and he bears that sin. And so this is a story about a heavenly missionary who has been dealing with a a fallen and immature race of people in our in our childhood state to try to grow us to mature us to increase our capacity to hear and receive and embrace truth and be transformed by the truth. He's growing us into adulthood where he can finally reveal his full self to us, and so that we can begin to then enter into a reciprocal adult loving relationship with him. That's what God's been after throughout history, and the Bible is the record of that. It's a record of God's involvement, working with us as we are. And so it's got twists and turns and developments. It's not an encyclopedia. And so where things are matters a great deal. And because God works by means of influential power, the way people at various stages of this process, the way they saw him and experienced him, it was conditioned by where they were at. The condition of their heart affects— this is a teaching that you find throughout the whole Bible. The the person's spiritual state— will very much influence what they, how they see God and how they hear God. Uh, it's, it's like God is a Rorschach test. You know, what, what we see is a, is a, says as much about us as it says about God, maybe even more. And it's a teaching that you find throughout the Bible. So, for example, Jesus, when he's uh, talking with the Pharisees, he says, why is my language not clear to you? And it wasn't because he had a speech impairment. He's talking very clear. And those who have hearts to hear can hear him. But he says, you are unable to hear what I have to say. Not because you're physically deaf, but because your heart is hard. You're spiritually not in a place where you can hear what I'm saying. You're going to misinterpret me. So A few people have asked me through the last series we did, why couldn't God just tell them, hey, you got it wrong, don't do that? Well, I'm sure he was doing that all, all along. Uh, in fact, you can find evidence of that in Scripture that he was doing that. But you hear what you're able to hear, and you see what you're able to see. And God has to deal with, with, with you where you're at. And he'll stoop to that level. Another passage says that to the pure, uh, God appears pure. And to the blameless, he he shows himself or he appears blameless. And to the faithful, you show yourself faithful. But to the devious, you appear shrewd. And the word devious and shrewd in Hebrew both have a connotation of twisted. Twisted. So the Lord is saying here, and you find this pattern throughout the Bible, that those who who have untwisted hearts and minds— who are, who can see and feel straight, who are pure and blameless, they can see God as he is, at least insofar as that's possible in this epoch of, 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 of our existence. Uh, you know, we, we always see through a glass darkly, but you can see God as he is to the extent that we're able. But to the degree that someone's heart and mind is twisted, God's going to appear twisted. Because our experience of God and what we hear from God and what we think we see in God is always coming through to us through a filter. So if your filter is twisted, the God you're relating to is going to feel twisted. But it's not because God actually is twisted. It's because you're twisted. So the way we experience God is conditioned by the spiritual state of our heart. Now, in that, in that light, it becomes significant that the Bible continually describes the ancient Israelites as very twisted. Twisted. It stresses over and over again how they're stiff-necked people. They're disobedient. They don't get what God's about. They're always missing it. They're spiritually dull. Psalm 78, for example, the Lord's talking about a future generation, and he's hoping that they won't be like their ancestors are, the people he's dealing with right now, because they're a stubborn and rebellious generation. Their hearts are not loyal to me, and their spirits are not faithful to God he's describing Israel generally. This is twisted. They're not faithful to God. They're they're not loyal to God. They're rebellious and they're stubborn. And that's going to affect what they see in God. If you're twisted, you're going to see a twisted God. Um, We find that uh, sometimes biblical authors will say, go so far as to say that there's no knowledge of God. They don't know God at all. So for example, in Hosea, we read this. He says, there's no faithfulness in the land. There's no love of God in the land. There's no acknowledgement of God in the land. Now, he's got to be having a little bit of hyperbole here, but you get the general picture here that these people do not know God. There's no acknowledgement of God in in the land. Then we read uh, this in in Isaiah. He says, They have no regard for the diesel, Lord. Uh, They have no respect for the work of his hands. My people are going into exile because they lack understanding. They just don't get what God's about. They're twisted. They're stuck in their culturally conditioned, fallen ways. Some, some uh, authors even say that the leaders, those who are entrusted with the spiritual headship of Israel, who are in charge of helping others you know, stay on track, even they are corrupt and even they lack knowledge of God. So in Jeremiah ch- chapter 2, verse 8, we read this. He says, The priests do not ask, where is the Lord? What he's getting at here is he's saying God has vacated the premises. He's now left us vulnerable to the Babylonians. But God has left. And you know what? the priests who are supposed to be in charge of the spirituality of Israel, they don't even notice it. God disappeared, and they were so out of touch with God that they don't even notice it. And then he says, those who deal with the law do not know me. They're supposed to be the specialists who, who know him. The leaders have rebelled against me. And if the leaders are this far gone, well, the people who follow the leaders are going to be just as far gone. So, so you do the math here. Look, if, if they've got, if a if, if, uh, The way that people see God and experience God and hear God is conditioned by their heart. To the degree that they're twisted, they're going to see a twisted God. If that's true, and if it's true that Israel was as twisted as these authors described them as being, and they were, well then clearly the Israelites are going to have a lot of twisted pictures of God. Which means we should expect to find twisted pictures of God throughout the Old Testament— which, in my opinion, if Jesus Christ, especially Jesus Christ crucified, is your criteria for what an untwisted picture of God looks like, and he is, if that's your criteria, and everything to be measured against that, well, then you can't help, or at least I can't help, but come to the conclusion that some of these pictures of God that we find in the Old Testament are, in fact, twisted. Which is what you'd expect, because they're relating to God with twisted minds and twisted hearts. Here's an example of a, of, of a twisted picture of God, in my opinion. Um, and this is a passage which I had never noticed. I'd read this, I'm sure, dozens and dozens of times. Not, didn't notice this until I started reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, because now I, be, I really notice everything that disagrees with the character of God that's revealed in the cross. And this picture all of a sudden jumped out at me. Like where, what, what? So here's what it says: Exodus 5.3. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. This is, this is Moses and Aaron trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people of, uh, of Israel go to get out of Egypt. So he says, now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. What is up with that? What is up with that, yeah? Now there's no record of God ever saying this to Moses or Aaron. Um, it seems like somehow they just came to this conclusion. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of a bizarre thing. God did tell them over and over again, I want the children of Israel to get out of Egypt permanently. What's with this three-day journey thing? Where, where, where's, where's that coming from? I don't know. Um, and it's kind of bizarre if you think about it. They expect Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go out into the desert for three days and then return back home. Right. And Pharaoh's going to agree to this. And why is it so important to go out to the desert anyways? Why do you have to go out to the desert to offer sacrifices? Why don't you just offer them where you're at? They don't give a rationale for this. It's kind of funky, kind of weird. But one thing that is clear is this. Aaron and Moses believe that if they don't convince Pharaoh to let them go for three days, God's going to kill them. And maybe kill all those rights. Not, it's, it's not clear who the us refers to. God's going to kill them if, so the pressure is on. You talk about high sales, uh, high-pressure sales. This is it. Yahweh says, hey, you convince Pharaoh or you die. Maybe by the plague, maybe by the sword. I don't know. You choose, but you're going to die. Man, pressure is on. Woo! So you've got to ask the question, uh, does, does this—how does it relate to Jesus? Does Jesus do anything like this? Does this sound like Jesus? Does it look like the God who gave his life for all mankind, even kind of on the cross? If you ask me, not so much. Uh, look, it, it's, it's a picture of God that frankly re- resembles Al Capone more than it resembles the crucified Christ. Although it's not coincidental that it's a picture of God that does resemble the way people thought about the gods throughout the ancient Near East. All of Israel's neighbors, they had gods who made really weird, irrational demands like this. So we see some cultural influence here, but it doesn't look like a picture that, that, that reflects the character of Jesus Christ. But it's the kind of thing that, that, that you would expect given what the Bible says about how twisted the children of Israel were. If you ask me, that was a twisted picture. And it's a permanent testimony. It's a God-breathed picture. It's as God-breathed as anything in the Bible. Uh, but, but it's God-breathed for the purpose of pointing to the cross because it shows a lot about God's people, uh, how low God had to stoop to, to relate to them and to continue to work through them. This is how they sometimes thought about God. Now here's the thing. I submit to you that allowing a portrait of God like that to influence the way you think about God today is as irrational and unwarranted as judging who I am today based on what I said 53 years ago as a six-year-old. I said what I said as a six-year-old, yes. But... You can't abstract that out of where I was at and how immature I was and what little I knew about the world and how confused I was and all the other things that were going on there. Those statements are part of that. Um, If you want to know who I am, ask the mature me. (laughs) This mature me. Uh, Don't ask the six-year-old immature me. So also, with with the Bible, um, you can't abstract... The statement or the picture of God where where Moses and and Aaron are are given this, you can't abstract it out of where they're at in the story. They're at a very early stage in the story. God's just starting to work with these people. They got a lot of screwy ideas. And God's not going to lobotomize them to get out of those ideas. So God works with them with those ideas, which is why they show up in the biblical narrative as a testimony to how faithful the heavenly missionary has always been. However low we go, he's willing to go that low. That's, the Bible's a storybook where the, 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 these twisted pictures are part of the story. We're supposed to see a development. It'd be like, you know, if, if Van Gogh, let's say if someone was able to get pictures of that Van Gogh started drawing when he was two. And every year there's a, he drew a picture, you know, until you finally get to the mature Van Gogh where he's doing Starry, Starry Night. And so we've got this whole album of Van Gogh pictures. Well, you wouldn't judge how good an artist Van Gogh is based on what happened when he was two, Because he's drawing stick figures like everybody else, and maybe when he's five, he starts to pull ahead a little bit, you know, by actually putting full bodies or something like that. But still, be kind of screwy. And then when he's ten, it's going to be a little better. But it's a story. The, the The imperfections are meant to drive you to where he's at here. These are all stepping stones. So also, the point of the story is it's about the faithfulness of the heavenly missionary. How he's getting down there and he's working with these people and they don't get him, they misunderstand him, but he keeps on going. He keeps on working with them. And they get screwy ideas and they say stupid stuff and they hear it wrong and they say it wrong, but he keeps on staying with them. He's in covenant relationship with them. He doesn't give up on them. He's got a goal where he's leading them. And he keeps on influencing them, never coercing them, but influencing them towards the truth to finally, to finally, when the, the time is right, as Paul says, when the time was right, Jesus Christ comes into this world and now he reveals the mature revelation of himself, the real him. Now he reveals himself on the cross. And so if you want to know what God is like, don't go to what, what people were how people the twist away people were seeing him when they were at the six-year-old stage of Israel's existence. Go to the mature revelation, which is what the New Testament is always saying. This is what God really is like. Everything leads up to this God. And on the cross, God is saying, Here's who I really am, with all your filters, outside of all your judgments. With all your twistedness, this is me, real, authentic, and untwisted. Hallelujah. So God says, you know, on the cross, he's saying, "You, you, you get, when your children— you know, you're, you're twisted children and, and so you thought I was ugly, but you know what? I'm here to reveal to you now the truth that I am not at all ugly. I'm altogether beautiful. I'm the source of all that is beauty. And in and, and your twisted, childish ways, you thought I was into violence, but that was you projecting your violence onto me. I'm now here to reveal to you that I, I'm a God of peace. I'm a God of shalom. And I'm against all kinds of violence. And you, in your twisted ways, you thought I was a law-oriented deity. Always into these rules and all that. But I'm here to reveal to you that that, 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 that was your grid. That, that's not who I am. Because I'm into the grace. And I'm into forgiveness. And I'm into mercy. Praise God. Yes. On the cross, God is saying, you thought I had human enemies, but you know what? I'm telling you, I've never had any human enemies. I give my life for all enemies, praise God. And you thought I was your little parochial God. You thought I was just your little nationalistic deity. And I got that. You were children and you were twisted. And so I I, I put up with that. But now I'm here to reveal to you the truth that I'm not any, any one person's deity or any nation's deity. I'm the Lord of lords and the King of kings and the God of all gods. And I'm in love with every person. I'm the Savior of all people. He's in for the whole thing, praise God. You and your twisted ways, you thought that I was demanding animal sacrifices because that's what all the other deities did. And I get that. And I was willing to put up with that. Uh, I, I bore that sin, but now I'm here to reveal to you that I don't demand sacrifices from you of any sort. I am your sacrifice, praise God. Uh, I'm not like any deity you've ever known. All together different from the twisted ways that, that we, we view them. In a story, in a story where something's located, it makes all the difference in the world. Which brings us now back to Hebrews 1. And I'm just kind of setting up what this series is going to be all about. Hebrews 1. Let's read it again. Because this is the story. God, who gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truth in the words of the prophets, has now at the end of the present age given us the truth in the Son. And all those glimpses were ways, stepping stones up to this moment. Okay, the story was leading up to—this is the culmination of the story— Through the Son, God made the whole universe, and to the Son He has ordained that all creation shall ultimately be. Everything is created by Christ and for Christ. This Son is the radiance of the glory of God, the flawless expression of the nature of God. Where something's located makes all the difference in the world. In the past, in the past, uh, they they you know they got a mediated revelation. It came through the prophets, and it was found in words. They got words that were mediated through the prophets. And there's glimpses of truth in those things. But now we don't have a mediated revelation. It doesn't come through some third party. The Son himself has come. And to say the Son himself has come is to say God himself has come. He's, he's embodied. The Son is the embodiment of God in human form. God has come to us in person. So we don't have words, let alone words, that are mediated through somebody else. We've got the person. We've got the person himself. And they've got glimpses of truth. Praise God for that. Glimpses. But, but now we have the truth itself. We, we, we have the—they the, the, got glimpses of God's glory, but now we, we, we— Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the shininess of God's glory. When God puts on display his beauty, it looks like Jesus. And insofar as they got authentic glimpses, they were seeing the same Jesus we're seeing. It's just that they saw a lot of other stuff as well. They, they, they were twisted. It all got twisted up. So you, you get some beautiful stuff that's mixed in with a lot of other kind of stuff. And they, they had approximations of what God was like. Approximations, sometimes better, sometimes worse. Because it's all twisted, it's all, you know, there's a lot of clouds. But, but uh, we have, not the approximation, we have the flawless expression of God's nature. The word nature, there's hypostasis. it means essence, essence. This is flawless, it's inerrant, it's absolute. this is the perfect expression of what God is like down to the core of his being. Which means there's not any element, not any aspect, not any attribute of God that is not like this. Jesus, and especially Jesus on the cross, defines every centimeter of what God is, of who God is, of the character of God. God is entirely cross-like, and there's nothing uncross-like about him. This is who God really is. And so now, they, 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 they saw glimpses. But see, if you're outside and you're catching glimpses of the sun, that means it's a mostly cloudy day. If you say, oh yeah, I got glimpses of the sun. Well, they, you're seeing mostly clouds. And that's what they had. And insofar as they got glimpses, it, it, it looked like Jesus. But see, we, have a, we, we, we are seeing the sun on a cloudless day. And I'm now going to use sun with a double entendre. S-O-N-N-S-U-N. It's like the sun has come down underneath the clouds and dwelt among us. There's no clouds to get in the way anymore because we have the sun right here. He, he's here in person. And so... We are, see, we are seeing a cloudless revelation, what God is actually like to the core of his being. And since we have that now, we're able to look back. And we have the criteria to tell what was clouds in their view of God and what was, what was the breakthrough, what was the glimpse. They couldn't tell the difference. That's why they say beautiful stuff about God, but it goes right into saying ugly stuff about God. They couldn't tell the clouds from the sun, but we can because we see the full sun. And, and so insofar as anything that they say or anything that they represent looks like it has the same character, it has the same feel as Jesus Christ dying on the cross for his enemies, they're seeing genuine glimpses. That's the criteria. But insofar as they are saying anything that doesn't agree with the crucified Christ, well, we're to assess that as, as, as a cloud. As a cloud. And, and insofar as it's a cloud, it doesn't mean it's not God-breathed and inspired. It is. But it, 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 it's all inspired to bear witness to the cross. As he said, it does it by serving as a testimony to how low God had to be willing to stoop in order to stay in covenant relationship with his people. And in doing that, we're seeing God do the same thing that he does on the cross. He stoops to bear our sin. So when we come upon pictures of God like Exodus 5, if it doesn't cohere with with the character of God out of the crucified Christ, the surface doesn't reveal anything true to us about God. The surface meaning, because we get our idea about God entirely from Jesus Christ crucified. Never mesh those two things together. Don't—why let the, its like trading in sunlight for clouds. Don't do that. If you've got the sun, don't let the clouds get in the way. Um, and and so, so when we come upon this, the surface meaning of the passage isn't what reveals God to us. The surface meaning reveals the character of the people that God's dealing with. It tells us a lot about how the people at the time viewed God. But what reveals God to us is that we, knowing what God's really like, can look through the ugly sin-mirroring surface of these portraits and we see God stooping this distance. The heavenly missionary chasing people, coming down to their level in order to meet them where they're at and bear their sin and therefore take on an appearance that reflects that ugly sin. Well, you must be able to tell the difference between the clouds and the sunlight. Praise God we've got the sun. Never exchange the sun for a bunch of clouds. So I, I, it brings me to this point, and I end with this, this question. One of the things that is, is, is good about this is if we can, as we're able to tell the difference between clouds and sun in Scripture, as we get good at distinguishing that, which is a new skill for a lot of us because we've been taught that the, the Bible is a, is a theological textbook where everything's supposed to have equal authority. And so this is a new skill. But see, it's because we haven't learned that skill that we ourselves have trouble sometimes telling the difference between the sun and clouds. We have polluted pictures of God. And there's nothing worse in a, for a person than to have a polluted picture of God because everything hangs on your picture of God. Your passion for God, your love for God, and your ability to be transformed into his likeness all depends on the purity of your picture of God. And so as we go through this series, we're hoping that it helps us get better at detecting the clouds in our own brains. I end with this question, and it's a question I'd like you to be asking throughout this series. What really is your picture of God? Not what is your theology, but what actually goes on between your ears when you think about God? Do you trust, because this is the trust of the new covenant, do you trust to the core of your being that God looks like Jesus Christ crucified, no ifs, ands, buts, or maybes? Or do you yet have cloud suspicions that maybe there's a different side of God? Maybe there's a streak in him that's just nasty. How pure, how Christ-like, how cross-like is your picture of God? Because the beauty of your life and the quality of your relationship with God will never outrun the beauty of your mental picture of God. Look back at the biblical history and see it as a story developing to this point. But do it knowing what is the cloud and what is the sun. And in that way, take every thought captive to Christ so that your picture of God is entirely, entirely Completely, 100%, without remainder, defined by Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen. Would you stand? (laughs) Hallelujah. Yes. So if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I encourage you to come up here. Our prayer teams will be up here by the stairs. And uh, just let them serve you. Let them pray for you. That's what they're here for. Or if you're here this morning and you're not a fully devoted follower of Jesus but there's something that's calling on your heart right now saying you should check this out, I encourage you to come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to help you get started on uh, the, this walk with God. As we leave here, can we be a people who are committed, who take responsibility, who take responsibility for our mental picture of God? It doesn't matter how it got there. Don't blame them. They're doing their best. The fact is that it is there. Will you take responsibility to be a brain purger, all right? the discipler of your own brain, that organic computer between your ear. Take responsibility for that and keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and, and so can we, as we leave here, can we do it as people who are, have our eyes fixed on him with a commitment to reflect that beauty to all people at all times, in all places, in all situations, though if, and, buts, maybe these are exceptions. If you agree with that, say amen and get out of here. Amen. God bless you guys. Go live on the world. Hello, everyone. Just a quick reminder. This is our last week of our Sustain campaign. Uh, we'd like you to consider helping us hit our goal of 375. If you haven't done so already, just go to whchurch.org slash sustain. We out of here. Bye.